The first Bible reading tonight comes from Psalm 25 and is found on page 545 of the Visitor's Bibles. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who, then, is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress, and take away all my sins. See how my enemies have increased, and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope is in you. Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. Um, John 16, verses 12 to 24. I have much more to say to you, more than you now can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from you what is mine and make it known to you. In a while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does, this mean by, what does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father, they kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Evening, everybody. Good to be with you tonight. 
I hope you'll think the same after we've finished what I've got to do. <laughs> Looking at John chapter 16, that passage that's just been so capably read, and uh, I just want to say a few things on it. It's, inter- it's prudent for us to remember that when the Bible is read, it's actually God speaking. So what I've got to say is probably secondary to what comes out of the Bible. So let's perhaps keep that in mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you care about us, that your love for us is unbounded. And Lord, that you have demonstrated that through the death and resurrection of your son Jesus. Lord, as we look at this passage tonight, and remember it was uh, a record of an incident that occurred at a very uh, stressful and crucial time for our Lord, that we might learn from it the things you want us to know. We praise you, Father, that you have everything in your hand. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in case you don't know who I am, my name's Jeff Warner. I'm married to Harreen Warner, who used to be the teacher, librarian at Kuiper for a little while. Um, we got five kids. That's it. <laughs> we used to come here, actually. We used to come to Karajong probably about 15 years ago. We're now going to Wilberforce. But my wife and I have been involved in the organisation of five weddings. All were very typical affairs, lots of stress and organisation before the great day. Feelings were rampant, exposed nerve endings were frayed as we tried to get everything to come together for the big day. You young people will probably have to go through this on your own. Be warned. There were dresses and flowers to buy, arrangements to be made for the service and the reception, and it all seemed to occupy every waking moment. But finally the day came and went, and the happy pair tripped off on their honeymoon, leaving us to return hire suits, look after presents, etc., etc., etc. The fallout for us left behind was usually substantial. What seemed to fill all of our time, gone. Life took on a new look. The project was finished. And we started living life without another one of our kids. They now belong to someone else. They're making a new life together. A whole new family was begun. Now this situation got me to thinking. Life brings us to stages where great changes occur and nothing is ever the same again. Graduating from high school after year 12 or maybe year 10. First job, marriage, the birth of a child, the marriage of a child, death of a parent, death of a partner. All probable in each of our experience and each time they happen, the direction and circumstances of our lives change irreversibly. Now some of us can prepare for these events and we're ready when they come. Sometimes they come without warning. We think life will go on the way it always has and suddenly everything changes. And in the worst cases, the shock and grief can be unbearable. I'm getting to the cheer-up part soon. (laughs) We are by nature creatures of habit and the majority, majority of us are happiest when life goes on without unwanted surprises. How we react when circumstances change suddenly can determine the direction of the rest of our lives. And we would all hope, I guess that we would be able to handle it and just move on in life. 
The passage of scripture we're looking at tonight has Jesus' disciples faced with a situation that was totally unexpected. Jesus is talking about leaving them, returning for a little while, and then going forever. Now this was probably different to their agenda, the disciples' agenda of gradually accumulating power with Jesus as their leader. As they take over the country of Israel, they'll throw the Romans out and restore Israel to its former glory as it was under King David many years ago. That was their anticipated agenda as they read the prophecies in the Old Testament. They're in the upper room with Jesus at the Last Supper on the night before he is to be crucified and Jesus has sent Judas on his way to do what he was, had planned to do and you read that in John 13, 27. Now in the brief time that's left, Jesus must pass on to the small band of men that has been with him for three short years the mantle of revealing God's salvation plan to the world. Big task. And in so doing, and in passing that on, reassure them that they are not alone. One of the greatest catchphrases of our intense culture is the expression, too much information. Someone's in a conversation you say, oh, cut it out, it's too much information. They're obviously talking about a boil they've just popped or their hemorrhoids or something like that, and you want them to stop. Too much information. Well, Jesus is concerned that he doesn't give the disciples too much information and certainly not on those topics because in verse 12 it says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. He has so much to tell them, but time did not permit. And I guess from Jesus' words, he felt that they would just plain not be able to handle it. With the brutality of his own arrest, his trial, his scourging and his crucifixion, Imminent. I suspect Jesus recognised the disciples would be too traumatised to cope with all that he wanted to tell them. But he does tell them one thing, one piece of information that they could hold on to in the next little while. That the Holy Spirit, whom he promised to them earlier in the night in uh, John fourteen sixteen, would lead them into truth, into the truth they needed to know to continue the work of ministry. And that's what Jesus had been preparing them for these three years. It wasn't a little party or a little three-year holiday roaming around Israel. This was intense preparation for these disciples. He chose them to be the ones to continue his work after he'd gone. Way back in the early days when he chose them, he told them that they would be what? Yeah, fishers of men. And that's what... This moment was. The moment had come and Jesus knew that his time on earth was drawing to an end and God's plan had to be put in place. And part of the plan was to equip the disciples with the spiritual necessities to get the job done that they'd been called to do. Well, what did Jesus have in mind? What exactly will the Holy Spirit do to equip these guys? From verses 13 and 14... Jesus gives two of the functions of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christians and they are linked. Here they come. That when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Firstly, he leads Christ's disciples into the truths about Jesus. That's the first thing. And secondly, with the Holy Spirit's help. Knowing those truths, 
and living their lives for him, Jesus' disciples bring glory to Jesus. Now, there are other functions of the Holy Spirit. It's not just limited to those two things. But for the disciples at this crucial time, these are the two that Jesus wants them to understand. These are the things they will need to know to get them through the next little while. Now, I don't need to tell you, I'm sure, that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and with God, the Father, and Jesus the Son, he ministers God's love to those who put their trust in Jesus. As verse 13 has already told us, he is not separate, he doesn't have another agenda. His role is to maintain the connection between Christ and his followers so that we can do the works of ministry that God wants us all to do. So how does he do that? Let's read 14 and 15. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. He takes what the Father and the Son hold in common and passes it on to us. The stuff we need to know to keep us connected to Jesus and to help us tell others about him. Now, I don't know if you're aware of it, you probably are, but that's a great privilege that we've been given. He didn't just send Jesus 2,000 years ago, have him die for our sins and rise again and then say, okay, guys, you're on your own, do your best, see you later. He provided the Holy Spirit to be with us, to help us, to keep us connected. Now, that's great. That really is great, isn't it? Because if we, tried to, if we thought about it and considered it honestly, we would say... It's all too hard just to do it on my own because the world is opposed to God. That's why it's in the state that it's in right now. It really is great because we not only have the privilege of being with God forever when we didn't deserve it, but the assurance of Jesus with us now, right now, and into eternity. All the power, the knowledge and the comfort that God has is at our disposal, measured out by a loving Father, for our individual needs, for his glory. And that's what it's really all about, isn't it? Our task here on earth is to honour and glorify God by glorifying his son in our lives. Empowered and instructed by the Holy Spirit, we disciples are to glorify Jesus, as verse 14 says, not just to strive to do better, so to try and impress God, but to be what we are. God's privileged children, nurtured and loved by God the Spirit and equipped by him to do all that he has prepared for us to do. Why? Because it doesn't end with us. When Jesus passed all this on to his disciples in the upper room, he had you and me in mind. 2,000 years or so later, the message has come down to us. The Holy Spirit has touched our hearts and we've responded to God's call. And like those before us who told us, we need to pass the good news on to others. That's why we're here. We do that by drawing on what God has revealed to us about Jesus and living like the people he wants us to be. It's a great privilege to know that he has not left us alone, but he lives in us to be the source of all that we need to live for him, to share in his work for the salvation of those who will trust him. Do you realise we are partners with God in gospel ministry? Every single one of us. He has partnered with us. He is the missionary. We are the messengers. We tell the story. He does the saving.
not a bad deal. We don't have to do it all. Well, I hope that piece of information is a joy and a comfort to you because I guess we can all remember times when we faced opposition or ridicule for our faith. We tentatively say something in a conversation to try and draw, and dry, to try and draw people's minds towards the whole idea of who Jesus is only to be put down savagely by people who reject the gospel. It can make you feel just a little, well, just a little persecuted. And over many years, Christians have endured even greater trials than that. But returning to where we are in this passage, the disciples are in the upper room. They're doing okay. They're having a good meal. Jesus is with them. Everything seems to be schmick, no problems. In that upper room, enjoying the Passover meal, the disciples would probably have not had the slightest inkling of what was just about to happen in the next few hours. Now, I'm one of those people who doesn't like surprises. I particularly don't like unpleasant surprises. I remember as a child in the great immunisation campaigns of the 1950s, standing in a queue for the first time that I was there to get a jab. And in those days, they used to just march the whole school down to a hall and you lined up and gradually inched your way forward and the further forward you got, the louder the crying became. <laughs> this is not going to be too bad. I convinced myself I'm a pretty tough guy. <laughs> As I got close and heard the crying of those who'd gone before, I realised this wasn't such a good idea after all. After the event, I was convinced. Ain't nobody going to stick holes in me anymore, I decided. Had no choice. The subsequent immunisation campaigns for other diseases were inflicted on us and they were no more pleasant. Do not like unpleasant surprises. I guess the consolation is, of course, I never got seriously sick with anything, but at that time that didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Jesus' language in verses 16 to 24 obviously had the disciples wondering. Verse 18 states it clearly, they just didn't understand. Here it says, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. What a contrast between what was happening in that upper room and what Jesus would be going through in just a few short hours. I haven't any idea of the brutality of scourging or crucifixion, but I imagine that it was traumatic for both the victim and anyone who saw it. And I suppose if you watched The Passion of the Christ, you might get a bit of an inkling of what it was like. Although you always remind yourself it's just a movie and the bloke isn't suffering much. The climax of what God was going through Sorry, the climax of what God was doing through Jesus for all mankind was just a few short hours away. And yet here he was doing what? Equipping the disciples, showing concern for the disciples. They were his priority. Concerned that they are prepared for their unpleasant surprise and concerned that they are able to get through the grief. One good thing about our society these days is that we're mostly sympathetic when a crisis comes along although sadly not always. They say that people these days are sympathied out. There's been so many calls on people for help for various crises and things that people are now finding it difficult to um, respond appropriately. But in times of grief and sorrow, we usually can depend on those around us to show sympathy and understanding, if not even get a little help. But Jesus tells the disciples that while they are grieving, the world will be rejoicing. Look at verse 20. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve. And but he says your grief will turn to joy. Isolated by their circumstances, fearful of reprisals and suffering the loss of their leader, the disciples will experience the pain 
of watching the world celebrate Jesus' death. Caught, captured and killed, Jesus will be led like a lamb to the slaughter and quietly submit to man at his most brutal. And the world will be celebrating. I love John's Gospel. It's the first Gospel I read when I became a Christian. And there are a few chapters that are my favourites. Chapter 9, for instance. won't go into too much detail, but there a very, a, a very poor blind man who's healed by Jesus confounds the great theologians of his day and turns their whole attempt to discredit Jesus back on them. It's a great read. If you like to barrack for the underdog, it's a good passage. But my most favourite chapter is chapter 20 because it describes the joy that Jesus is telling his disciples when it talks about Jesus' resurrection. The immediate concern is the grief that they are about to experience, but Jesus lifts their eyes beyond that to the moment of triumph when Jesus is raised from the dead. Sure, they will be devastated. Sure, they'll be depressed. Sure, they will be grief-stricken as they go through the little while. But once through that, joy that can never be removed awaits because they will see Jesus again. That's why he uses an illustration that they would all understand in verse 21 so that they could remember his words when they were going through the trial. Verse 21, okay, ladies, brace yourself. A woman giving birth to a child is pain because a time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. The birth of a baby then was not nearly as clinically detached as it is today, so the disciples would know from first-hand experience what Jesus meant. There will be pain, there will be suffering, but that will pale to insignificance in the light of the final outcome. Remember when I was uh, expecting my first child, um, I had to get a letter from the chief executive of the hospital to be allowed to be present at the birth. And if any one of the staff, no matter who was there in that theatre or birthing room or whatever you want to call it, objected to my presence, I had to leave immediately. So as a matter of course, the nursing staff objected to every man that came in. No, it's too busy, you'll have to go out. So I didn't get to see my first child born. I had to wait till number three. I guess that's why we kept going. I just wanted to be there. <laughs> God is all about love. All that Jesus went through was for what? For you and for me. He loves us. And his concern is expressed in providing for the disciples so they won't have to bear any more than they can endure. That's why he warns them of the coming events and that's why he promises them eventual joy so that they can hold on in times of grief. How great is the love of our God to be so concerned for us at such a critical time for him. I have come that they may have life to the full. That's the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10. That's part of his mission statement. I have come that they may have life to the full. Our lives lived under the protection and the provision of a loving and caring God. Life lived to glorify God through Jesus for what he has done for us and his promise to us as he lives in us. The remarkable thing about this stage in Jesus' life on earth is that his concern was for following through on the Father's will and caring for and providing for his disciples. 
If I'd been anticipating what Jesus was, I would have been booking a seat on the first flight out of Jerusalem. I wouldn't hang around for that. But Jesus knew that there was no other way to deal with the problem of our rebellion against God's will. God's plan was in place. God, Jesus knew his part in it. And it had to be completed. God is not thwarted by the evil plans of rebellious men. He will follow through on what he has promised and bring victory out of what seems to be certain defeat. The mere fact that Jesus knew that he would see his disciples again indicates that the plan would succeed. So his words about the function of the Holy Spirit and grief turning to joy would be remembered and would be an encouragement in the future for the disciples under stress or persecution or threat of death. All that Jesus said would be given to the disciples is available to all those who put their faith in him and live a life of gratitude and obedience to him. The Holy Spirit lives in the lives of all believers once faith is placed in Jesus and his function for us is the same as that promise for the original band of men in the area of teaching the truth about Jesus. As we read, prayerfully read the Bible, we are led by the Spirit to understand what God is saying to us as individuals. Now it's really nice in a church service to read the Bible and we can hear what it says and it's really nice that someone stands on and yabbers on for 25 minutes or whatever about what they interpret the Bible is saying, how they see the Holy Spirit gets them to see, see it and reveal that to you. But God's plan is for you to read the Bible and for you to be uh, taught by the Holy Spirit directly. I don't say that you, everything you read you're going to understand, but the promise is that you will be led into truth. You can consult with other people, you can talk about it to ministers and all that, but really it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God as we read the Bible. So the more we live under the authority of God's word, the more we become tuned to understand what it is he's doing in our lives and in the lives of others. And as we face a hostile world and are at times burdened by fear or stress or persecution, we too have the promise of grief turning to joy because of the promise of Jesus' ultimate victory over the evil of this world. The victory's already run. It was won at the cross. We are dealing with the after effects now. In verses 23 and 24 of this chapter, Jesus gives us the privilege of direct access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. Let's have a look at that. Verses 23 and 24. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy may be complete. What is God concerned about in this relationship? So that our joy may be complete. Our joy in knowing him and sharing with him in this journey. Isn't God a great God for providing all that, for wanting to do that? I hope you think so. All this planning, all this provision put in place so that we can live abundant, joyful lives. When you think of how great God is and how sinful we are, doesn't it spin your mind to realise that he still loves us and is providing all we need, even so? Joy that will never end awaits for those of us whose faith endures no matter what the world throws at us in the way of unexpected change. How great to know that God not only provides the joy and the destination but also the means to make it to the end no matter what happens. I hope that's encouraging for you.
May that knowledge be a source of perpetual joy for us as we live grateful lives for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've looked at your word tonight. We thank you that it was written by one of your disciples to pass the message on to us as we read it here today. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit who lives in all of those who commit their lives to you. Help us, Father, not to be phased by what we see and hear or the things that come into our own personal lives, but to remember that your plan is for abundant, joyful living. And so, Lord, as we journey towards the end and we face that time when we will stand with you, we pray that we will remember that you are there providing all that we need to do that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.